Okay, so I know what you're probably thinking. Here we are in the third episode of a podcast for the Toronto newspaper, The Globe and Mail, sharing the good word on how to make cities better, according to urban progressive types. And so you probably have an idea of who I am as your host, a latte-sipping, tweed-blazered elitist who wages the war on cars while flying down bike lanes on my fixie. But I, like all of us, contain multitudes. For one thing, I find milky coffee drinks kind of gross. And also, there's this. I don't actually know how to ride a bike. I would just fall here. That's me, swearing as I repeatedly and embarrassingly fall to the ground. That was from a short documentary a friend and I made when I was in university called Adrian Lee Learns How to Ride a Bike. And that may not have been a great name because here's a spoiler for it. I never did get on that bike. With my suburban and surprisingly permissive upbringing, I just never learned how. And even when I lived in urban bike centers like Halifax and Toronto, I never felt I needed to. I was happy to walk or take public transit. And so, to this day, when someone tells me that something is as easy as riding a bike, I assume they mean that the task is actually very difficult and will make my knees bleed. Instead, and I feel like some kind of traitor for saying this, I have been a downtown driver with a leased car for the past couple of years. And you know what? I love it. It's convenient. And while my partner might hate me for saying this, I should be honest. What's not to like about being able to use the car as an additional storage unit on wheels? But how do we strike a balance between the use of bikes and cars while also trying to make our cities more efficient, more safe, and more accessible with less traffic pollution, noise pollution, and actual pollution. Those are goals we should all want to achieve, no matter how we choose to get around. And yet, I know there are lots of guilty-feeling city drivers like me, caught up in between. So, the so-called war on cars? What is it good for, really? How did we get ourselves here? And how should we move forward, literally? Welcome back to City Space. In this episode, We're talking about cars and bikes. I'm Adrian Lee. It's become a matter of identity, whether you're a bike person or a car person. But why have we become so quick to believe we're either road-raging car advocates who believe they own the road, or die-hard cyclists cursing out the car jerks while full of avocado toasts and short espressos? When you're a jet, you're a jet, all the way from your first cigarette to your last dying day. It's become the Jets versus the Sharks, the Spandex Crew versus the Gas Gang. If you're really on one side, you're probably not very much on the other. And it's led us to this fever pitch of personal transportation tribalism. But there is a middle ground, 
To get there, though, we're going to have to overcome our tendency to think about whether bikes or cars are the more correct option. Because that emotional attachment to our chosen identity often overshadows any meaningful conversation about what actually might be best for a city. So, how did we get here? Cities weren't always designed around cars, hard as that might be to imagine. Cars used to be newfangled technology, and like any innovation, people had to buy in. So let me take you back in time, to the start of the 1920s. The World War and the Spanish flu pandemic had just ended, and people were really excited about never having to worry about those things ever again. In the midst of all that change, though, street life remained a constant, as these transitional public spaces where streetcar and horse traffic flowed through, where vendors sold their wares, children played together, and people walked freely wherever and whenever they pleased. Cars were only just starting to become popular among the wealthy who could afford them, and for regular people, they were starting to become nuisances that ate up valuable pedestrian space. Not only that, they were also seen as killing machines, mostly of vulnerable children and seniors. That transitional period was an incredibly dangerous time, especially to be a pedestrian, and that's a big part of why things changed. That's Peter Norton, an associate professor of engineering and societal history at the University of Virginia. He's the author of Fighting Traffic, as well as the new book, Autonorama, The Illusory Promise of High-Tech Driving. When cars were new, especially in cities, the people who were getting injured or killed were primarily on foot pedestrians, people who didn't even drive at all. And it was very easy to characterize those people as innocent victims. They weren't endangering anyone else. They were using streets for what they were for, no matter where they were in the street. And there's a period, particularly in the teens and 20s, where automobiles were just being compared to everything nasty and evil under the sun. They were caricatured as the Grim Reaper, as devils, as Satan, and so on, because uh, under the norms of that time, it was obviously the driver's fault or the car's fault. It was never the pedestrian's fault. It turns out that nothing brings people together quite as quickly as the collective belief that kids should not be getting killed. And so there was a loud pushback to the rise of cars, demanding that it was drivers that had to yield to the norms of streets and to the people on foot. In 1923, 42,000 people signed a petition around Cincinnati that called for cars to have mandatory mechanisms to prevent them from driving more than 40 kilometers an hour in the city. Between that and the bad PR associated with, you know, using something that could kill children, the wealthy people who were buying cars started getting cold feet. That scared the heck out of car makers, who realized they needed to be proactive about forcing people to share the streets with their scary wheeled machines, or risk having their new innovation drive off unused into the sunset. Their answer? Making fun of the people using the streets and doing it so much that the law would eventually swoop in to enforce it. No, seriously. Peter's going to explain right after this. One of the keys for car makers in taking over our streets was to change the conversation. And it did, kind of ingeniously, by inventing jaywalking. Here's Peter again. So one of the ways was to call them jaywalkers which 
had a much sort of sharper sting than it has today because the word J meant something like hick or rube, but much harsher. In fact, the term was actually a matter of controversy whether the term should be used at all because it was considered offensive. To call somebody a jaywalker was to say that you are a stupid, uneducated, rural throwback to the 19th century. You don't belong in the street. It's the 20th century. It's the motor age. It's for cars now. And you need to learn this. And auto clubs and auto dealers got Boy Scouts and who were like free labor for them. And they, they handed Boy Scouts stacks of cards. The cards said, you know, you're jaywalking. And they would describe it, maybe show a map of what jaywalking is and how to cross the street. And the Boy Scouts were told to hand these out to pedestrians who were crossing improperly from the point of view of the dealers and the clubs. And people learned what jaywalking was that way. A lot of them were angry about it. It took some years for people to um, get used to this change, but change did come. And eventually, uh, you know, by 1930, it was typically illegal to uh, jaywalk, even though it had not been a decade earlier. That's right. It turns out that people hate being both made fun of and arrested. And so eventually, people on the street yielded to cars and not the other way around. Cities then built around the needs of drivers, with freeways and sprawlier and sprawlier development. And so more and more people bought and drove cars. Over time, a concerted effort from private interests almost 100 years ago led us to where we are today, where car supremacy feels like it's all we've ever known. It's little wonder, then, that efforts to hive off bike lanes from the rest of the road now feels, to many, like an invasion of what they believe rightfully belongs to them. It's the tension and resentment that always builds when there's only so much room, and people feel like others are elbowing their way into their city space. Oh hey, that's the name of the show. Another funny thing happened on the way to car manufacturers and customers changing the rules of our streets. After mocking people as idiots for wanting things to be the way they were before, urban planners, cycling activists, and bike riders started calling for more and better bike-friendly infrastructure in our cities. It was much harder to dismiss them as stupid. And so instead, they got called the E-word, one of the most offensive terms you can toss around in political discourse these days. That is, they got called elites. And that's by design, too. Here's Peter again. The accusation that someone who, say, is critical of car domination is an elitist has a, a really interesting history. You know, I don't want to go into too much detail. I'll just offer one anecdote that sheds light on it. In the uh, late 50s, after the Interstate Highway Bill of 56 was passed that supplied huge federal funds in the U.S. for interstate highways, very soon thereafter, there were a lot of bulldozers tearing down much of U.S. cities to make room for these things. And predictably, there were a lot of critics. And the ones who could get a, um, a stage, a platform, uh, were, the, were the better connected ones. So in every city, there were critics. But you know, some of the intellectuals from Harvard or, or from New York City, they're the ones, they managed to get a hearing because they were the well-connected ones. And that exposed them to a sort of off-the-shelf criticism uh, namely, oh, you're some kind of egghead. You're a do-gooder. You're, you know, you're you're an elitist. You're you're sitting in judgment uh, over the taste of the average American, and so on. 
And that version of who the critics of the car was, was propagated most successfully in a 1961 TV special paid for by DuPont at a time when DuPont owned a 23% share of General Motors. That was a history of the car as the history of what most Americans always wanted and what a small elite always disdained. And it's a fascinating story because that's actually almost the opposite of the way it really was in the sense that actually, of course, the people who got cars first were the wealthier people. And that particular TV special, which was called Merrily We Roll Along, introduced a phrase we've had ever since. The phrase is that Americans have a love affair with the automobile. And what this phrase signifies is that we should be thinking about this attachment to cars as a love, as a preference, as a democratic value, not as a rational, you know, cost-benefit analysis thing. And in a free country, a democracy, we bow to the consumer's preferences. We don't judge it. That's what the communists are doing. You know, they're the, the ones planning everything for everybody else. But we, in freedom-loving North America, we recognize that if Americans love automobiles and Canadians love automobiles, that's what they should have. So that critique you hear today of latte sipping uh, cyclists or whatever, that has a fraught history and it's not a history that's well known. And it's a history that, that I think exposes that whole perspective to some serious challenge. So how did choices around personal transportation go from personal insults to personal identity? The first part of this episode should leave you thinking about how we were pitted against each other along personal transportation lines, and that we should stop assuming things about people and what camp they might belong to. But it should also make you see that I, as your host, don't necessarily live out my values. And so, when I jumped on a Zoom call with Michael Colville Anderson, a Canadian-Danish urban mobility expert, I couldn't help but think he was exactly who I thought he'd be. He spoke to me from a vacation in Greece, his white linen shirt buttoned low and his hair long and flowing, happy to chat between glasses of wine about coaching cities around the world to be more bike-friendly, and about how he led the largest study of cycling behavior ever undertaken in Copenhagen, a city often cited as one of the most bike-friendly in the world. That made sense to me, since he's been called the Richard Dawkins of cycling by Esquire, and the Justin Bieber of urban cycling by the CBC, for some reason. Hey, I'd like to be called the Channing Tatum of napping, if we're just giving weird nicknames away. Anyway, here's Michael. I mean, we spend a lot of time, you know, transporting ourselves. Cars were never designed for cities in, you know, the urban context. So I think really, you know, a lot of the conversation is about me, you know, me, me, me. I spend all my time in this vehicle that I have invested a lot of money in. And uh, therefore, you know, I am the primary protagonist in this conversation. So the transformation was very rapid as well. You know, one of the quickest in the history of our cities. The car has alienated people because of the nature of the, of the vehicle. You know, you're locked into your bubble. You come out of your home, your bubble, into your garage, your bubble, into your bubble. You drive to work, you park in a garage, you go into your office and you repeat, Right. Um, you're not really interacting at all with the, you know, the anthropological beauty of a city. But despite my assumptions about him, and despite the fact that he's clearly an intense bike guy by trade, 
Michael is actually kind of a billboard for balance. He doesn't identify as a cyclist when he's off duty, just biking around Copenhagen. He's not a fanatic about bike gear or how to fix bikes. In short, he doesn't think of biking as part of his identity. To him, it's just the easiest way to get around where he lives. But North American cities aren't really focused on that. Because they've been built chiefly to accommodate cars, the conversation tends toward division, instead of just thinking about the easiest way for everyone to get around. The conversation has not advanced as far as so many other places in the world. It still is this incredibly car-centric mentality that it's not the fault of that irritating motorist that drove past that cyclist today and honked, but it is really uh, the culture since the 1940s and 50s in North America where traffic engineering was and still is the all-dominant force. And it dominates the lives of urban citizens all across North America, other countries as well. But in North America, it really is a specific and, and important problem that we need to address. Traffic engineering has been placed on a pedestal that they did not deserve, um, where we know how to move people around cities. We've had a lot of experience with that over the past 130 years, not just bikes, wider sidewalks, public transport. We need to move people around our cities in an age of urbanization. And in North America, it's the conversation just keeps going back to the damn car. Like it's the only thing we've ever invented. And it really is the worst business model in the history of transportation. And yet people are, it's like a drug. Car lobbyists are powerful. So powerful, in fact, we forget they massively shaped how we understand our city streets today. That they helped conceptualize and execute the North American suburb. And the car was, and is, a shining jewel of North American industry. Surely, then, other countries that are home to major car makers would be equally resistant to adopting more bike-friendly infrastructure. But as Michael notes, of the top five countries lauded for their urban cycling infrastructure, third on the list is Japan. 15% of Japan's population cycles to work every day, and there's a pretty strong car industry there. Germany is fifth on that list, and it's famously a car-making force, too. So, what exactly is North America's deal? Why can't we make it work? More after this. In the early months of the COVID-19 pandemic, people weren't leaving their homes, which, combined with a rise in remote work, led to a plunge in car traffic. About 70% less in Canadian cities between March and April 2020, according to the navigation app Waze. So cities around the world, at least 365 of them, according to one study, reallocated big chunks of street space to more bike space when folks needed to get around but didn't feel as comfortable taking public transit. Many Canadian cities did that too. Moncton, Kitchener, Ottawa, Montreal, Vancouver, Victoria, Toronto, Calgary, and Winnipeg they all extended their bike lane network since the pandemic began. The feedback for most of those projects is probably what you'd expect. Cyclists loved it, and drivers felt inconvenienced. Take the city of Bogota, Colombia, for example. When the pandemic hit, 
its mayor enacted one of the world's first plans to encourage bike travel, creating 76 kilometers of temporary lanes. There was initial pushback from motorists, of course, who complained that the city had taken a valuable car lane away. Until, that is, data show that the new bike lane had managed to double the effectiveness of the space, moving more people per hour per direction. But Bogota also has something special going on when it comes to biking. It's a place that's kind of infamous for having some of the world's worst traffic. But in the 70s, they spawned this movement called Ciclovia, which sees about 1.5 million people pedal across 128 kilometers of car-free streets every Sunday morning. So thanks to that existing bike friendliness, it wasn't too hard a sell for the government to make 65 of that 76 kilometers of temporary pandemic bike infrastructure permanent, to the benefit of all people trying to get around. But cars and bikes in North American cities, man, are they ever going to get along? Especially if we don't have four decades of Seclovia under our belt? Here's author and professor Peter Norton again. There's no question there's a real sort of rivalry. I think part of what that's about is the fact that, you know, when you have an environment of scarcity, then you tend to have friction because not everybody can get what they want. That environment of scarcity is what we have in North America by virtue of having rebuilt and in the case of newer cities, built our cities specifically for the drivers. And when you build a city just for drivers, you have scarcity for everybody else. Obviously, like it's harder to walk, it's harder to cycle, it's harder to take the bus in an environment that sort of presumes that either you're a driver or, you know, we don't even have to think about you. If you have an environment that's built only for drivers, then any other attempt to use that space for any other purpose becomes now an obstacle to the only normal way to get around. And by normal, I mean the way that's perceived of as the correct way to use the street. About 60 years of evidence shows that creating more car lanes causes something called induced demand, where more lanes don't seem to mean less traffic, it means more cars, and in fact, more traffic. And that works in reverse, too. Fewer car lanes tend to actually create less traffic over time. That's called reduced demand. And then there's this. A study by the universities of Colorado and New Mexico, published in the Journal of Transport and Health, state that protected and separated bike lanes are strongly linked to lower fatality and injury rates, not only for people on bikes, but for people in cars, too. Bikes also tend to be good for local businesses. As the convenience of online shopping means brick-and-mortar stores need to change how they compete, namely to appeal as more of a destination to go to, potential customers who don't have to contend with parking a car seem more inclined to just pop in. Establishments along a major Toronto bike lane strip, for example, saw an increase in consumer spending after better biking infrastructure was created. And a Portland State University study found cyclists actually spend more money overall than car driving customers because they visit more frequently. And there's research that shows bike lanes tend to help improve public health, too. One British health study of more than a quarter million people found those who commuted by bike reduced their risk of cardiovascular disease, cancer, and all other causes of death by nearly half. One 2009 study stated cardiovascular disease and cancer alone cost the Canadian healthcare system more than $37 billion per year, 
That's enough to make me want to give that bike another try. Easing the strain on traffic congestion, fatalities, pollution, and the purse strings of our local businesses and taxpayers, that's a lot in support of more and safer bike lanes in our cities. But Michael says the time to hesitate is through. What I've seen all over the world over the past 15 years is, you know, talking about it does not do anything for anybody. We're not winning hearts and minds by continuing the same tired conversation. What we need to do is to act. And the cities around the world that have been most successful at a rapid transformation in the way that they move people around the city, bicycles, public transport, wider sidewalks, all of it, are the ones that have politicians that just do it. For decades, special interests have been pitting people against each other, splitting us into camps based on something as unnecessarily divisive as our choices around personal transportation. But the thing is, there's way, way more that unites people than divides us in cities. Someone who rides a bike can surely see the value of doing a big, convenient grocery run for their kids in a car. Someone who drives a car can surely understand that cyclists just want to feel safe. Cities are made up of people, and people are made up of multitudes. We're all living together in close quarters, and building better cities will require everyone's buy-in on so many complicated issues. Ending the tribalism around how we get around, that should really be where we start the conversation. It should be as easy as riding a bike, and it shouldn't be as hard as me trying to learn how to ride one. On the next episode of City Space, we're looking at public spaces and who they're failing. How can we make them better for everyone, even after this pandemic is over? We're now halfway into the first season of our show. If you like what you're hearing so far, please give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us get recognized so we can keep doing the work we do. And if you have suggestions, you can email the show at podcasts at globeandmail.com. City Space is produced by Julia De Laurentiis Johnston. This episode was written by Julia, Kieran Rana, Stephanie Chan, and me, Adrian Lee. Our theme song is by Andrew Austin. Evan Miles of Post Office Sound edits our show. Our executive producer is Kieran Rana. Thank you to our guests this episode, Michael Colville-Anderson and Peter Norton, for lending us their time to record this show remotely. You can find Michael at colville-anderson.com and Peter's new book, Autonorama, The Illusory Promise of High-Tech Driving, at islandpress.org. And a grudging thank you to Michael Freeman, my former documentary co-director who convinced me to embarrass myself in Adrian Lee Learns How to Ride a Bike, footage of which was used in this episode. I'm Adrian Lee. Thanks for listening, and talk to you soon.